morning. It's great to be with you, and I'm glad to, to see you all this morning. Please open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 19, which Manny just read for us. You know, I like to uh, watch videos of science, and uh, I'm an aerospace engineer by trade, and, and I, I love the sciences, and, and, and I was watching one video, and it was, it was kind of disturbing, maybe even a little alarming, uh, and it's really sad because it's being marketed to children, but there's a prominent atheist, and he's promoting the idea that we are all stardust. Now, some of you who are in school may have heard that. You may have heard that we are stardust. And he goes on, and he, he begins by saying that our ancient ancestors worshiped the sun as deity. And then he launches into a segment describing how the elements that make up all the atoms of the earth and the world and of the universe and all the material were created in the furnaces of the stars. And he concludes by reflecting and almost in agreement that maybe our ancestors were right. Maybe they were correct and the sun is the closest thing we have to a God because the stars created us. That's tragic. And especially that it's being taught to children. He wasn't the first to promote this idea, but he's certainly the one marketing it. And it's being taught as science. And children in our public schools and probably even many in private schools are being taught the pagan religion repackaged and wrapped in a cloak of deception to mislead the people. But there's a better voice. A voice that declares the true God. It speaks through the very sun and the stars claimed to be gods. And it speaks so loudly that it is enough to condemn people for all eternity if they ignore it. And if that wasn't amazing enough, God himself speaks to us through his prophets and tells us all that we need to know to have abundant life. At the very beginning of the scriptures, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it begins with, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Before mankind even utters a single word, God has already spoken. And one of the first things that we learn about God when we open his word is that God speaks. He is not silent. And in this psalm, Psalm 19, we see that God speaks to us through his creation. When the heavens declare the glory of God, they're declaring it to us. There's not some mystical audience out there that the heavens and, and the skies above are simply sending their message out into space, but that is a message for us. It is for people. And even more glorious and even more amazing is that God speaks to us through his holy written word. You see, when we look at creation, it tells us of a powerful God. But it's through his sacred text that he reveals to us who he is, his sovereign plans, his divine will for mankind. 
and what he requires of us. So in this psalm, Psalm 19, we're going to see three things as we go through it. First, we're going to see that God speaks to us through his creation. The second thing we're going to see is that God speaks to us through his written word. And finally, we are going to see the right and proper response to hearing from God. And then today we're going to conclude our time together by applying this, by talking about how we can study and meditate on the word of God. This is part of our Discipline of Grace series aimed to equip our people to live more joyous, holy, and satisfying lives. So we will spend time at the end talking about how to study and meditate on the very word of God. Psalm 19, it opens, and I love it, with this fantastic opening line. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now we can speculate, we can think about it and imagine that there was the shepherd king, David, watching his flocks out in the field and it was nighttime and it's quiet and he stares up into the night sky and he sees that wondrous night sky and in that moment of astonishment, he is made acutely aware of the wonder and majesty of the creator God. That may be true. That may be how we got this psalm. But David is making a greater claim. You see, in a single psalm, he's going to tell us of the God who is speaking through his created works, through creation, and he's also speaking through his written, written word, and the two are in complete harmony with each other. They fit together perfectly. His works and his, cre- and his word are perfect matches. We can look at creation and we can know some things about God. But when we open his word and we read it, all of those things that we learned about are confirmed, but they're expounded upon. And they tell us more than just things about God. They tell us how we can know God. So first, David begins with this macro vision of creation. So he's claiming, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. We see the skies and we see the handiwork of what he's done. God's work is on full display. And this is not a one-time message. It says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. This is not just a continuous little trickle of information coming to us, but it's a gushing forth. It's like a spring that, that comes forth and creates rivers. This is continuous that's happening. It's, it's even a far greater geyser than old faithful. It's a continuous spring producing rivers of speech. And while there are no spoken words, no audible words, the message is clear and undeniable. In fact, you'd have to work hard not to hear it. You can't hide from it. 
It says it goes across the entire globe to the ends of the earth. There is no one with excuse. The message is truth and it's clear and it's universal and no one's exempt from knowing that God exists. You see what God did here? Language, culture, even distance is not a barrier to hear this word. That there is a God and he exists and he's revealed himself to all of humanity. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. He says in Romans 1, he says, for what can we be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? He's repeating what David had said. David says, it's undeniable there is a God. Paul says, it's undeniable there is a God. And both were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us there is a God. So what, what do people do when the truth is undeniable? Well, they exchange the truth for a lie. And that is what Paul tells us. Why? Because creation reveals there is a creator God and it is the duty of mankind to worship him. That's what creation speaks to us. While we may not know from creation how we can have a relationship with that God, it's undeniable that there is a creator God worthy of our worship and obedience and we're without excuse. And all people are without excuse. The works of God testify about God and his eternal power and his divine nature is enough to condemn an unbelieving mankind. David then gives us a case study. He talks about creation. He talks about the grand heavens declare, but now he's going to get specific. And he takes what he just said and he gives us this example. He chose carefully and he chose wisely and he chose the sun as his case study. And he's doing multiple things with this. He's continuing his theme that the sun, part of the heavens, declares the glory of God and everyone hears the message. But moreover, he's specifically condemning worship of the sun. He's attacking pagan myths of worshiping the sun. It says, in them he has set a tent for the sun. And then in verse 5, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He says the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. But notice, it's that God has set the sun there. God is the creator of the sun. There is no sun God. And yet the sun explodes on the horizon every morning like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And David chose wisely here. He's actually using words to discredit Sumerian and Akkadian sun god myths that describe the sun as a bridegroom. They describe the sun as a, as a strong man. He's a hero who goes out. 
They referred to the sun god as a warrior. And David says, no, the sun was created by God. The sun is not a god. But David says, he wants to be clear. The sun is created by God and does what God tells it to do. And it runs its course with joy. And it praises the God of creation. We should not worship the sun because we are not stardust. The sun is just another part of creation. It rises from one end of the heavens and travels to the other end of it. And nothing is hidden from its heat. Just like the speech from all of creation is undeniably heard. Nothing hides from the message of the sun. And just by observing creation alone, we can know that God exists and is worthy of worship. David will show us how this aligns perfectly with his written word. As we move on to verse 7, some critics of the Bible don't like the abrupt transition here. Well, they, they don't like the fact that there doesn't seem to be a transitional word or anything at all. It just moves from creation to the word of God. But it makes perfect sense. It does fit together. We talked about how creation can only tell us of a creator God who exists. And we learn of his eternal power and his divine nature. But caught up, if we get caught up in those first six verses, we're left wanting to know more. If God has, has pricked your heart and you're like, I do see it, there must be a God, then God has to, he's going to come with an answer. He's going to come with more information. He's going to come with, with more for us. The transition is in the message. And though David is, probably was not an avid golfer, he teased this up. In the first six verses, he puts it on the tee and he says, we're about to take a swing here because you're going to see how we can answer those questions. If you see, if you know, if you start begin to understand, there must be a God. There must be something far greater than me. And I want to know that God. He will tell us how. So this is a perfect transition. It's in the message. He's churning up a yearning in our souls. The answer is yes, you can know the creator. You can know the personal God and you can know him through his written word and God tells us about himself. And in these next verses, we're gonna see six descriptions of the word of God. And in each one, the word of God, word of the Lord is given a nuanced descriptor. We have law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear of God and rules. And each description has a characteristic associated with it, pure, sure, right, pure, I'm sorry, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And finally, we're provided with a list of benefits, each one tied to that description. Let's look at the first one. Verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So he takes the word of God and he, he begins to, to break it apart like a, a prism separates the different colors of light. He's going to show us the different parts of Scripture in a sense of how that impacts us. And the first one is law, and that's God's divine instruction. God is teaching man how to live life to its fullest 
through his word. That's what this is. God is saying, here's how you can live life. He tells us how we can live life in relation to him and how we live life in relation to others. This is found throughout the Torah or the first five books, through the prophets and in the wisdom literature. You see, God cares about how we live and how we relate to others. And he says that the law of the Lord is perfect. It's completely sufficient. It's flawless. It's kind of this sense of it's all-sided, meaning there, there, there's nothing missing and there's nothing extra. The law of the Lord is perfect. Everything we need is in here. There's nothing you need that's not in here. And it's designed to target your soul. And he says, its effect is to revive the soul. It revives, restores, renews, refreshes. He's talking about transformation. He's talking about the transformation of, of the inner person. We're talking about salvation. You see how David teed it up? He talked about how creation lets us know there is a God. And if you respond, he says, here's how God through his word can tell you how God can transform your life. You can go from being dead in your sins to alive. And God does that through his word. That is the power of the word of God. And the good news for people like me who get to stand up here and preach is that the word of God is not dependent upon my skill as a preacher or my stage presence or powers of persuasion. It's about the word of God alone. The word of God has that power, not anyone who stands behind this pulpit. Second part of verse seven says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony is God's divine witness about himself. God is telling us about himself. He's telling us who he is. He's telling us about his plan for mankind, about his sovereign will and what he requires of mankind. This is like the perfect virus protection for your soul. Like you have virus protection for your computer. This is virus protection for your soul. He's telling us what we need to know. And it says that, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, meaning it's, it's reliable it's trustworthy, it's unwavering, it's unmistakable. It's also able to be followed. And no edits are necessary to it. In Second Peter, Peter is telling and he's recounting when he was on the mountain with Christ during the transformation, transfiguration, I should say, so Christ is on the mountain and he is being transfigured into what his resurrected body would be like. And he's there with Moses and Elijah and God the Father from heaven speaks and his voice is heard. And Peter says, I was there. I saw it, I heard it. And you wanna know something? There's a more sure word than that. 
I won't even trust my own experiences compared to the word of God. Peter wrote, he said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's the, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter was there. And yet, listen to what he says next. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter witnessed the whole thing. He heard the voice of God the Father, and yet, he says, do you want to know what is even more certain in my mind? He would say, it's this. And he said, this is not based on any opinion of man. This doesn't contain opinion. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. In the gospel of Luke, we have the parable that Jesus taught of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you remember that, that parable and what happens, the rich man, he was, he was wealthy and he feasted and there was a poor man named Lazarus and they both die. And, and the poor man is carried to Abraham's side and the, the rich man, is not doing so well. And he wants Lazarus to help just provide a little bit for him, a little bit of relief, a little bit of water on his tongue to cool his tongue. And when he's told that no, no one passes, he has one more request for Abraham and he says this. He says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to ask you this then. I've got five brothers who are still alive and they live like me. Could you send Lazarus to go and tell him, the, tell him the message so that they could be saved? And what was the response? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God already. And he says this, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So even the experience of seeing the glorified Christ and hearing the voice of God or seeing a man raised from the dead is not nearly enough compared to the word of God. You see the treasure you have in your hands? This, it transforms our lives. And here it says that it, it makes wise the simple. A simple man is a man with an open mind. It's like an open door 
He lets anything in or out. He has zero discernment. Any idea of the world, any idea of anyone, he allows into his brain. He allows into his mind. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who kind of shuts the door to the counsel of the wicked, who shuts the door to the path of sinners, who shuts the door to the seat of scoffers. But see, he says here that the word of God has the ability to teach us discernment and wisdom. We can know how to live rightly in this world. We can have godly wisdom, and it comes through the word of God. The word of God takes the simple, undiscerning, uninformed, inexperienced person and makes them skilled at living. Does anyone say, I would love to be skilled at living? I would love to know how to live in this world, which seems like a madhouse out there. We have the word of God for that. And mastering the art of living is accomplished by the knowledge and application of the word of God. John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We can have wisdom and discernment through the word of God. In verse 8, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. What are precepts? We've seen the law and the testimony. Now we have the precepts. And the precepts are like divine doctrine. These are the absolute truths out there. These are the things that we should believe. They're not suggestions. They're not even nice ideas. These are absolute truths on what to believe. These are the principles for behavior and for living life that we find in the word of God. And get this, he says, and the precepts of the Lord are right. Now, I don't want you to think of the word right as being not wrong. That's not what it means here. This, is, this means for right living, for the path of life. This is how you walk the path of life. Psalm 119, 105 says, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God is both the lamp and the light. And guess what? The word of God is also the path. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is profitable for teaching. That's God saying, here's the path. This is the path of life that you should stay on. It's profitable for reproof. That's for when you get off the path. And God says, hey, you're off the path. And he corrects us. It's for correction. Here's how you get back onto the path. You see, we're not even smart enough to know that ourselves. We get off the path and we don't know how to get back on, so the word of God helps us. Here's how you get back on the path, and it's profitable for training in righteousness, meaning here's how you stay on the path. You see, the word of God here is good for all of this. And what is the result? Rejoicing the heart, joy. The result is joy. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a second. You're saying there's joy in following the rules? Doesn't the world tell us that getting off the path 
That's where the fun is? Isn't that what the world says? I had a, a, a friend in college. He lived in the dorm room right next to me, and he said that he believed in God, and he actually would go as far as to say he believes everything the Bible says, but he's having too much fun. He wanted to stay in what he thought was fun. In Genesis 3, 5, see, the serpent convinced Eve that God was cutting her out of the fun. It says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God's cutting you out of the fun. And that's what the world tries to tell us, yet scripture teaches differently. In 1 John 1, 4, he says, I write these things to you, to you that your joy may be full. So where do we have true joy in life? Walking along the path of God that he's laid out for us in scripture. Even Jesus confirms this in Luke 11. He says, happy are those who hear the word and obey it. True joy comes through knowing and obeying the word of God living the right kind of life and walking on the, wrong, on the right path. In verse 8, the second part of verse 8, he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So we've had law, we've had testimony and precepts, now we have commandment. And what is the commandment of the Lord? Those are his divine decrees. Those are God's mandates. They are the sovereign, binding, non-optional demands that God makes on man. These are what to do and what not to do. And what does scripture tell us about these? It says that they're pure or they're clear. The word of God is transparent. It's easily understood. It's accessible. We have clear direction for life. We may not always like it, but we have clear direction. And today, people want to convince us that scripture is murky, that it's open for interpretation, or that it's outdated, or that it's irrelevant. Yet Jesus would ask the people, have you not heard, or have you not read? He went back to scripture. He pointed them to the word of God and saying, you, you should have understood that. That was made clear to you on how you should live. And what's the benefit? What's the benefit that it says we have? It says it's enlightening the eyes. And it's through the word of, the God, word of God that we can now see truth we can now see ourselves for who we truly are through the word of God. Through the word of God, we can now finally get and understand the doctrine of total depravity. That makes sense to us now. We can understand the grand purposes of God unfolding in history. Through his word, we can see and understand the role of husbands, of fathers, of wives, of mothers, of singleness for people through his word. 
Through his word, we can understand the role of government. We can understand the role of the church through his word. It makes sense. And we can understand that by following Jesus, the world will hate us. We understand that disobedience brings judgment and obedient brings reward. It enlightens the eyes. Scripture opens us up to all of this. In verse nine, we now have, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This is kind of, this is pretty cool what David does here. David doesn't actually call out necessarily the word of God, but he calls out the effect of the word of God and makes them synonymous. The word of God gives us fear of the Lord. And so that's what he is saying. This, that fear of the Lord, and I, I, like, I like Jared's definition of the fear of the Lord. One of his definitions, he's got several. But he's the one that says, the fear of the Lord is the raw, delicious terror you taste when you begin to understand the magnitude and majesty of the God who has no beginning. You get a sense of that? When you read scripture, you're not confronted with this God who is so majestic that we all of a sudden, both at the same time, feel small and yet feel drawn to him. We feel a little bit hesitant, but we feel desire. The fear of the Lord. That's pretty cool what David does. And what he's doing is pointing to worship. How are we supposed to worship the living God? You see, scripture is a manual for prayer and worship. We pray back to God what he has revealed. It says we're supposed to worship God in spirit and in truth. Where are we going to get truth? We get it here. And in our prayer lives, when we want to pray to God, we want to have effective prayer. We pray the scriptures back. God speaks to us and we confirm it in our minds and our hearts and speak it back. This is what God wants from us. This is the manual for that. And it says that it's clean. It's it's free from all error. It's, it's free from corruption. It's free from defilement. It's free from any impurity. Psalm 12, 6 says, the word of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. This is pure, what we have. And what's the benefit? What's the result? It's enduring forever. You see, anything that's corrupt or, or defiled or, or tainted with sin at all is destined for death and destruction. But the word of the Lord is not. It endures forever. It lasts forever. Psalm 119.89 says, your word is fixed in the heavens. It's unmovable. It's unchanging. It's not going anywhere. We have the sure word in front of us and it endures forever. Finally, the last one, verse 9b here. The rules of the Lord are right. 
and righteous altogether. Oh, I'm sorry, the rules of the Lord are true and, and, and righteous altogether. What do the rules of the Lord mean here? The rules of the Lord here are his divine verdicts. This is what the supreme judge speaks from his bench. There is no one greater that you could appeal to him. The supreme judge has, has declared his verdict. There is a divine evaluation of our words, thoughts, and even our deeds. And God declares it. And scripture says, and it is, it is true. Paul describes people opposed to God in 2 Timothy. He describes them this way. They're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. You see, we have absolute truth here. And without the word of God, we cannot know truth. But with the word of God, we can know about creation. We can know about the fall. We can know about the flood. We can know about Abraham and Moses and David. We can know about the virgin birth. We can know about Christ's sinless life on this earth. And we can know about his death and resurrection. We have that absolute truth and it says it's righteous altogether. We can know these things. We can have a comprehensive righteousness we can begin to have the mind of Christ as mentioned in 1 Corinthians. You see, this is complete. There's no need to add to it. Everything is here. That's the word of God. It provides for all of our needs. It can save, sanctify. It can give joy. It can complete our understanding. It's eternally relevant. And it can bring about comprehensive righteousness. If you're sick of your sin that has trapped you and you know that you are guilty, we have divine instruction regarding salvation on the way that God has made to save us. If you can't navigate life, we have the divine witness of God to teach us discernment and to give us wisdom. And if you desire true joy, we have the divine doctrines that rejoice the heart. If you want to understand the mysteries of life, we have the divine decrees to help us see truth. Do you need a rock to cling to in a madly changing world? Do you need an absolute truth in a spiraling out of control, nose diving to the death culture? We have the word of God. And what's David's response? Beginning in verse 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The word of God is his greatest treasure and his greatest pleasure. And it should be ours. It can be ours. That can be found in the word of God. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So it also reproves and it rewards. So, we're warned when we're sinning and, and we're rewarded when we keep his ways. Verse 12 asks the question, who can discern his errors? How can we know? How can we know when we're sinning? 
And he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. In other words, there, there are sins that I don't even know I'm doing. So the word of God can reveal those to us. The word of God can teach us those areas of our lives that need to come under his, his sovereign rule. And then verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The word of God restrains us from probably, you know, the most vile of sin. And that's when we know what we're doing is sin. We know that it offends a holy and righteous God and we do it anyway. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the type of hidden sins where I did something and I didn't realize it was wrong. He's talking about, I know what I'm doing. I know it's wrong and I'm doing it anyway. Those types of sins. And the word of God can restrain us from that. So David ends in prayer and he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. King David looked back to the instructions he, that God gave to Joshua. God said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And so David prayed that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would be acceptable to Yahweh. We must have that same desire and even that same practice to know and to meditate on the word of God. And I know that sounds like a daunting task. And as part of the disciplines of grace, we want to help you with that. We want to give you some tools to help you in your Bible study and meditation. And you need to realize that Bible study and meditation go together. You're not going to do Bible study without meditation. And you're not going to do meditation without your Bible. So they go together and we want to help you with that. We want to help you learn how to study and to meditate on the word of God. Give you something practical to walk away from here. And I apologize we're not going to go as deep as you might want us to go, but that's all right. I will guarantee you that every elder, every small group leader, every discipleship leader in here would love to help you if you have questions about how to do this. You can go to any one of them, and they will be glad to help you with this. But how do we, do, how do we study and meditate on the Word of God? And, and before we jump into just that, let me talk about preparation for study. Preparation for meditation. Do your best to make it your best time. So for example, I'm a morning person. So I like to get up and I prefer to get up at 4 a.m. That's my best time. That's when my brain is thinking at its best. Now, there are times that I'm tired and that my first inkling is to get my cup of caffeine that helped me get started. And I say cup of caffeine because it's really cream and sugar with some coffee in it. Because <laughs> unlike Jared, I do love eggs, but I don't like coffee. And so, but I do like the caffeine in it to help me get going. And I'll do that, but 4 a.m. is my best time. In the morning is my best hours. If I work all day and then I come home and I try to give some time to God, it's not going to be my best time. Now, I can't do that all the time. I wish I could. I can't. 
My schedule interferes, but I always try to give God my best time. Also, have a good place to study. No distractions, good lighting, and the resources you need. Besides your Bible, have a notebook and a pen. And then prepare yourself spiritually. Pray for focus and no distractions and that, that your mind will be riveted to the text before you. Pray that you will bend your will to God's will revealed in scripture. And you'll ask for help to set aside those preconceptions we have. When we go to a text that is perhaps familiar, I remember when I was learning Hebrew and, and the first book you translate in Hebrew is Jonah. And the professor said, okay, we're about to go to Jonah, but I want you to kind of put aside what you think you know about Jonah because you're going to learn some things about Jonah. And I'm thinking, how are we learning about Jonah? We've been hearing about Jonah since the earliest Sunday school. We have to know everything by now, right? And it's amazing. Also, pray and come with anticipation that God will show you amazing things from his word. He will do that. And pray the Lord will use his word to satisfy the deepest longings and desires of your soul. And he will do that. After preparation, the first thing you want to do, and if you've chosen a text, is that you want to investigate the text you're going to study. Begin by reading through it over and over again. It takes work. This isn't a read it through once or twice. This is read through it over and over again. Get to know the text. And you want to be able to answer some questions. Hopefully you can answer these by reading through the text. But you want to know who wrote it? When was it written? Who was it written to? What was the purpose of writing it? And how did the author kind of structure their message to get it across to the people? And, and the best way to do this is to try to discern it yourself. Read through the passage, read through the book, and try to pull this out. Now, there are helps out there. There are tools. There are people who've written books that have that. And all they are are big introductions to all the books of the Bible. You can go there. But I say start here. See what you can discover. Spend time in the Word of God. Don't go to someone else's answer right away. And then as you're reading through it, I always tell folks, have that pen and that paper, that notebook ready. And if there's a person, place, or thing that you don't know, write it down and look it up. Go find out what the answer is. Uh, there are Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias to help with that. And write down things you want to investigate. But get to know the author. Get to know his vocabulary. Get to know how he makes an argument. The Apostle Paul is wonderful. I love reading the Apostle Paul because he's very analytic. He's like an engineer. He's going to walk me through the argument in a very systematic way that makes sense to my brain, and I love it. Learn how the author writes. Next, you need to observe the text. And this is where you spend most of your time. This is where you ask the hard questions of the text. Why is that word there? Why didn't he say something else? You look and you see what the context is. What just happened before this? You ask the hard questions and you really wrestle with these hard questions. You must understand the text. You want to dig deep into the text and discover what the author wanted to say to that original audience. But ultimately, you want to figure out 
what the author has to say to all of God's people across all time and space. We need to understand the text. Don't be in a hurry to get through it. There are always little, great little gems hiding there. The more time you spend reading it, the more you'll find and the more you'll discover. The scriptures were written for us to be able to read and understand them, so don't be discouraged. Yet we also know that they are written with uh, kind of that sweat-drenched digging and excavation in mind that you're going to work to pull out some truths from Scripture. Don't be afraid of that. In fact, I, I, I encourage you to spend time doing that. It's very rewarding when you do that. And as you do that, we will ultimately be hit with some uh, texts that have interpretive challenges. We just really struggle to understand what they mean. And though you may be tempted to just turn the page and forget about it, I, I really encourage you to spend the time to figure that out. And the good news is the Bible actually gives us its own hermeneutic process. And hermeneutics are, it's a fancy word for the rules we follow when we're studying Scripture. So the Bible itself tells us how we should study Scripture. And it gives us two great ways here to do that. The first is through the covenants. Talking about the, the Noahic covenant. I'm talking about the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the new covenants. See, these are the framework and the overarching context by which everything in the Bible will make sense. You see, God gave us these covenants to give us that framework, to show us what he's doing, so that when we read scripture, we know where to put it. We understand God's big plan. So use the covenants. Together they create the storyline and the trajectory of God's drama of redemption. The other way that scripture teaches us how to study scripture is by observing the New Testament writer's use of the Old Testament. We see from the writers of the New Testament that when they used the Old Testament, it was a literal, historical, grammatical, and contextual understanding of the text. What does that mean? Literal. It means it was the plain sense of the text, not hidden meanings. It was historical, written in actual history about actual history. It was grammatical. They yield to the normal rules of grammar and was contextual. It surrenders to the circles of context that limits, that constrains and narrows the author's intended meaning. If you come to a small passage and you read it and you start interpreting it in a way that is opposed to what the whole book says or even what the chapter says or anything there says, you're probably wrong. It has to fit as a contextualization. So when you, when you spend time, you use those as your tools. And this brings us to what we call exegetical meditation. And exegesis is, is really just studying to find the meaning of the text. And this meditation, this is the time we spend in rigorous, repetitive reflection and careful contemplation of the text. In other words, it's the natural act that we all have in reading, engaging, engaging those God-given powers you have to, to read, to think, to process, to deduce, to understand with desperate dependence on God. 
you pull up any book. When I pull out an engineering book and I want to read it, I have to put work into reading it. It doesn't just fall off the page into my lap. I have to read it, sometimes reread it, sometimes go back, check. Same is true of Scripture. We wrestle with it. That's what this exegetical meditation is. Keep reading it until that meaning comes clear to you. Spend time wrestling with the text. And then finally, we have interpretation. And this is not us inventing the meaning. Uh, what we're trying to do here is figure out that one message that the author has that applies to all of God's people across all time and space. So there's one interpretation, but there can be many applications. So here's some, some rules. One is uh, the authorial intent uh, is our hermeneutical conviction. In other words, we want to know what the author wanted to say, and so that should be the starting point of how we figure this out. What does the author actually say? John says, I write these things to you that you may know how to have eternal life. What's that book about? That one's not hard. It's so that I can know how to have eternal life. And scripture helps us with that. And the goal of interpretation is to transform our very longings and cravings and desires until sin and anything not of Christ will feel distasteful and strange. Do you get that? We want to interpret scripture. We want to understand the word of God so that sin tastes really bad to us. And that we actually long for the truth. And as we look to apply it, we meditate on that. This is the moment by moment clinging to Christ through his word as we go throughout our day. And that's how he supplies his power that we need to do what he commands. And by doing that, we radiate his supreme worth and value to the world. That's a quick way, quick study on how to study the scripture how to meditate, but it's work. It's using the cognitive skills and abilities we all have, plus time, plus putting in the time, putting in the work, plus cutting out all that uh, would draw us away. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the marvelous, marvelous truths contained within it. Give us a love for it, never to take it for granted and never to want to wander from it, never to substitute anything else for it, but to live and to move and to have our being in your word. We pray that you'll use it today to convert souls, to make naive people wise, to bring joy, to bring clarity, to induce true worship and to produce the comprehensive righteousness that honors you. Do your work, Lord. We pray this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.